Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, and I run the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. This week, we're bringing you another extra inning for The Ballpark. This time, I'm joined by Professor Theda Scotchpole. Theda Scotchpole is the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. Professor Scotchpole is also the director of the Scholars Strategy Network a nationwide U.S. organization with more than a 1,000 members that makes the work of university researchers understandable to civic groups, policymakers, and the media. Professor Scotchpole, join us on the 14th of October for our event, Donald Trump and the Roots of Republican Extremism in the U.S. Ahead of the event, I talked to Professor Scotchpole about her research on the Republican Party and her new book. I started out by asking Professor Scotchpole, but how she thought the Republican Party had changed and evolved since the early 2000s. It's radicalized in two ways. First of all, um, organized, very wealthy conservatives. Centered in the Koch network, but not only. They, are, they also exist in other groups and organizations. Have deployed a lot of resources outside of the party to try to ensure that elected Republicans and um, candidates who are successful pursue a government slashing agenda, basically uh, lower taxes, particularly on the wealthy and corporations, opposition to any use of government regulation to deal with the global warming crisis, evisceration of labor union rights uh, and uh, labor market protections, a whole series of regulatory, really, eviscerations. And that, in turn, I would say, over time, it, it really affected the agenda of Republicans. Now, Republicans have been pro-business for a long time, and I think many people on the U.S. left stress that. But this is more of an ideolo- a hard-nosed ideological ultra-free market approach that sometimes even steps on the toes of businesses that would like infrastructure spending or would like a go-along to get along with, say, public sector unions. So that was one strand of radicalism. And the other has been the growth of popular, um, it's called Tea Partyism in the United States, but it's really anti-immigrant, ethnic nationalism, tension about the increasing racial diversity of more immigrants to American society. We're at the end of a period of immigration and uh, changing attitudes among younger people. Um, And it tends to be grounded in the non-big city areas. Okay, thank you. So you talk about the the two contemporary influences on the Republican Party now, so the billionaire ultra-free market fundamentalism and popularly rooted ethno-nationalist resentment. So are these new, or are they new versions of, of what have been older trends? Well, I think the Koch network-led uh, ultra-free market fundamentalism is pretty new in the since the mid-20th century. Um, I mean, you, you would have seen versions of this in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but not so much from the World Depression and World War II period onward. Republicans were more in favor of moderating the growth of a government that dealt with opportunity and social welfare issues than they were destroying those capacities. The ethno-nationalist strand, it's new in some ways. It's certainly newly virulent uh, in recent times, but 
If you look over 200 years of American history, you're going to see that at the end of every period of rapid arrival of new waves of immigrants, and they were the Irish, you know, and the uh, arriving uh, before the Civil War, the Eastern Europeans, Germans, Jews, Italians, arriving uh, late 19th and early 20th century, and then there was a hiatus in rapid arrivals from 1924 to 1965, but since from 1965 until about 2008, there was really rapid arrival of people from Central America, Mexico, and Asia. And it's we're at the tail end of that wave, and that wave is particularly the arrival of the of the Hispanic immigrants is particularly on the mind of today's ethno-nationalists. And you can always weave that together with the black-white tensions, which are just perennial in American democracy. Okay, thank you. So the Republican Party has become polarized to the right. And maybe you could talk a bit more about how this has happened and, and why. And also, have we seen a similar move leftwards in the Democratic Party? Well, you know, if you look at the statistics that political science, quantitative political scientists use to measure movement, the amazing thing is that Republicans have been moving steadily right, particularly on economic issues, but also on many cultural issues, even when they lose elections. Uh, and that's not what political scientists predict. They usually predict moderation after you lose elections. Uh, that's been going on since the 1990s, but it has really accelerated in the 2000s. And I would say reached a, a fever pitch after in the Obama period when the Obama presidency was simply unacceptable to many people on the elite and popular right. But you saw some of the same things with Clinton, so it's not purely a matter of race. Um, Democrats have, have crowded a bit to the left, but there's still a gaggle of people from the kind of moderate liberal to um, just on the edge of left progressive, and they've moved much less to the left uh, in the period from the 1990s to the present than Republicans have moved to the right because Republicans just never stop moving to the right. It just never stops. Okay. So moving on to the to the current president of the United States. So would you say President Trump has a Republican ideology and has the GOP now become the party of Trump? Well, the GOP has certainly become the party of Trump. I don't know about a Republican ideology. I mean, he is a remarkably uh, narcissist figure with strong authoritarian impulses at the personal level. He has a, as a popular politician, he has a canny knack for tapping resentments. So he has been very, very good at scratching every division in American society on the cultural side. He also knows how to resonate with the anger and resentment that many popular conservatives in the United States feel. They feel on the defensive. They feel that the America they know is under attack. And since Trump personally feels he's always under attack, you see in his rallies that kind of synchronization of the personal resentments with the, the cultural and racial and ethnic resentments. But I don't know that Trump really cares about policy positions beyond anger at, Im at non-white immigrants at all. He simply figures out where the power centers are that are going to protect him. And for that reason, he has embraced pro-gun policies. He presents himself as a champion of the Christian right, which is 
absurd. This is a man who is pagan at best. Um, he's no Christian. And I think many Christians know that. I mean, many Christian conservatives know that. They under, some understand him as an instrument, not a, a believer. Others have talked themselves into thinking he is a co-believer. But he's also embraced the Koch network agenda uh, on the economic side because he understands that Republican Party elites were largely already converted to that. And that if he appointed the kind of judges they wanted to the federal courts, if he signed a huge tax cut uh, aimed at the rich, if he destroys all efforts to deal with global warming, he knows they like that. And, and they do indeed like that and will put up with a lot from him in order to have those things. So you could almost say the Republican Party has actually hijacked Trump for its own purposes, its own agenda. It's a two-way thing. Yeah, it's a two-way deal of devils. Okay. Absolutely. So Trump has, has heavily leveraged racial animus to gain support ever since he declared his candidacy in 2015. How would you say this actually fits with the Republican Party's recent history? Well, the Republican Party has been pandering in racial innuendo since the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. Which is ironic in a way because the Republican Party before that was actually much more likely to be the party supported by African Americans in the North because it had, to some degree, championed their civil rights. Um, and it was an anti-immigrant for the most part because business elites of the traditional kind are, don't really mind having extra labor that will work for lower wages. I think, though, that the modern Republican Party has been thinking, many of them, that they could hint at the racial resentments, uh, particularly once the white South switched to support the Republican Party after the Civil Rights Movement. And it's just that they did it in code. And then along came Trump and he stopped. He's forgotten about code. So he sort of made it, brought it to the surface in a way that it kind of, it's always been there, right? It's not only been there, but Republican elites have been playing with that fire for quite some time. Many of them, not all, but many. So that puts them in a very bad position to really speak up when somebody says out loud what many of their followers and some of them actually believe. So the Republican Party used to care a great deal about fiscal responsibility and deficits and, and the national debt. This seems to have gone out the window under President Trump. Why is that? I don't think the Republican Party has really cared about fiscal responsibility and debt for quite some time. I mean, with the pattern of of caring about it when Democrats are in office but not caring about it when they're in office is pretty long-standing. But yeah, there's not a peep about it now. In fact, the remarkable thing is that President Trump, and with the support of the Republicans in Congress, the party completely controlled Congress for the first two years, have racked up huge, unprecedented deficits, and they don't seem to care. It hasn't worked, though. It's not really stimulating the economy the way they wanted. Uh, but it's worked for the people that support them. You know, I interviewed a, a wealthy, very wealthy American, a billionaire who is a member of the Coke Network and very successful businessman. And uh, he, I, I think a no-nonsense guy, I think a lot to respect of the business that he has built. And he and his adult children were in the room during the interview. And the daughter said to me, you know, she can't stand to look at Donald Trump. Obviously, he's uncouth and he says things about America she doesn't like, but she's glad every day he's in office because of the regulatory and tax policies he follows. And when I ask about the hatred toward immigrants being expressed, and these are not, this is not a business family that I think themselves are particularly invested in anything like that, 
said, well, that's what his followers want. So they see it as the price they pay to get what they fundamentally want out of um, the Republican president who's prepared to just plow ahead. And do you see their their capability for accepting this kind of behavior to be infinite? Or is there eventually going, you know, might there be a limit? I don't see the limit. I, I really don't. I, I think, I mean, uh, most business people who hedge their bets, or most wealthy people who hedge their bets on Trump have contributed gobs of money this time. And even those who don't endorse him, and the Koch leaders don't, they pour it into the Republican Party, and they're turning out voters for Trump as well as for the Republican Senate. So I think they know what they're doing. I, I actually don't believe it's mainly elected politicians who are afraid of them. I think some are, and they're afraid of of humiliation and they're afraid of challenges from the right in primaries. But I also think at core, most of them like what he's doing. So no matter what, Donald Trump won't be president after 2024, or perhaps even sooner. Will the Republican Party revert to its previous form or has it been changed forever by Trump? Well, I don't think it'll be easy to go back to even McCain era republicanism. And I don't believe the Republican Party itself will change. There are a, a certain proportion of Republican identifiers, both elites and voters, who really are not comfortable with the social extremism at all, uh, with the uncouth personal behavior, probably with the authoritarian tendencies. But they won't gain any leverage in the Republican Party until the Republicans suffer th three major electoral defeats in a row. And they've only suffered one so far. So it takes 2020 and 2022 before you'll begin to see cracks. The American two-party system is so resilient for a lot of rules-based reasons that you would expect an effort to remake the Republican Party rather than simply its dissolution, but that could happen. But I don't see it happening very soon. I think there could be another Trump-like figure that comes after him, and it might be much more frightening than even this one because uh, such a person might be competent. Thinking about Trump's competency and, and, the, and the sort of the, the specter of, of impeachment and a possible trial in the Senate, which we may see or may not in the next year, I think, I believe it was retired Senator Jeff Flake recently said there was upwards of 35 votes by Republicans in the Senate for impeachment if the vote was cast in secret. Why is there this reluctance amongst members of the Republican Party to say no? Is, is it down to how they're funded? Is it down to their electoral chances? Well, there's a collective action problem. I mean, unlike you had a group of Tories in Britain who were able to coordinate enough to join an effort to stop Johnson from going forward with Brexit. And that was a policy, not a, an entire regime. But Britain still has a bit more of an elite establishment than the United States. The United States really doesn't have an elite establishment. It has wealthy people, successful people, but they have a, bit, a hard time coordinating with one another or understanding how to coordinate with one another. So I wouldn't, I don't see how, I'm pretty sure there are a lot of Republican senators at this point who are sick and tired of this. And there are growing policy problems, and uh, Trump's behavior is becoming more and more erratic from their perspective. But the coordination problems are enormous. They would have trouble even communicating with one another. 
only Romney has really spoken up. And that's an interesting case because he comes from Utah and the one group of religious conservatives in the United States who've been a little less enthusiastic about Trump are Mormons, probably because they have some sense of public purpose. And the thing that offends both principled conservatives and liberals about Trump the most is that he doesn't stand for any public purpose. This particular Ukraine scandal nicely highlights that. But it's been true all along. However, I just don't know how the rest would coordinate. I mean, and they are worried about challenges from the right, and they wouldn't have to come from big money people. They would come from his angry supporters who are quite organized at this point. Many of them are armed. Many of them go from rally to rally. They are fierce, angry people. You see them on TV. I've talked to some of them. They are indeed angry. And for them, it's thrilling to see President Trump do things that outrage liberals. Thank you. Well, just finally, I just thought I'd be I'd quickly talk about um, your new book project, mm -hmm. which is focusing on, please correct me if, I, if this is incorrect, how Democrats voted in 2018 and, and the, is the power of older white women. Is that correct? Well, we have a book coming out, and I say we because the first big publication is it's genuinely, it's an edited book, but it isn't really because it's the chapters are all by people who've worked together a number of them by me. And it's called Upending American Politics. It's coming out from Oxford University Press right at the turn of the year. And part one is about the rise of these Republican radical forces, particularly the Tea Party people. There's good research now that shows that Tea Party identifiers are the core of Trump's supporters, which I sort of knew anyway, but now we've got it nailed down by Pew in an attitude survey that shows that people that were very sympathetic to the Tea Party a few years ago are the core enthusiasts for Trump. That's the popular ethno-nationalists. And a number of the chapters in the first part of the book look at individual states and how those people were organized. Then, um, and I have a chapter called The Dual Roots of Republican Radicalism, which is very similar to what I'm going to present in my lecture here in, in Britain. Then the second part of the book is about what's happened with Democrats since the Trump presidency. Democrats and centrists and liberals, and it features particularly the spread, the widespread of these anti-Trump grassroots resistance groups, which have spread across the United States even more extensively than local Tea Parties did after 2008. So these are electorally sparked popular movements, first on the right, now on the center left, and we explore, you know, what who they are. They're led by women, um, older white women. Not a glamorous category on the American left. I mean, you know, American leftists in cities will roll their eyes if you say it's librarians. And, but that's who it is. And uh, they've organized everywhere across most of the country. And we've studied them extensively in particularly the state of Pennsylvania, all 67 counties of the state of Pennsylvania and looked at not only what they did in the 2018 election, but what, how they're changing the Democratic Party from the bottom up. And uh, so, upending American politics from two directions. And these are all, uh, some of the chapters are national in focus. Others are about particular key states like Texas and Michigan and North Carolina and Wisconsin. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely look out for that one. Thank you so much. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Check out this feed for the recording of Professor Theda Scotchball's recent U.S. Center event, Donald Trump and the Route to Republican Extremism in the U.S. Thanks so much to Professor Theda Scotchball for speaking to me today. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman. 
The Ballpark Podcast is supported by the Phelan family. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. So email us any feedback at uscenter@lse.ac.uk, or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.